0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we
1: have Dan Shapir. Hey, from Tel Aviv, where it's still very warm and very sunny. Steve Edwards. Hello, from Portland, where it's also very warm and very sunny. Shocking in August, I know. AJ O'Neill.
2: Yo, 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 coming at you live from the mechanic shop.
1: I'm Charles
0: Maxwood from Top End Devs, and this week we have a special guest. It's Mishko Hevery. Mishko, it's been a while. Yes, thanks for having me again. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want. right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Now you're actually out here in AJ in my neck of the
3: woods for ng That's right, I'm visiting ng right now. I'm actually in Salt Lake City in the
4: the Grand uh, America Hotel. Oh, you have uh, something to do with Angular?
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, do you know anything about Angular? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I was
0: telling him about it last week. It's pretty awesome. But no, I'm just kidding. So uh, Mishko, yeah, obviously, you know, you're one of the main forces behind Angular. Uh, Do you want to just give us an introduction, though, as to uh, what you're working on now? And
3: Yeah, so I I did this thing called Angular, which became pretty popular. And I've been at Google for uh, 16 years. And so I think after that long time, it was time to try something new. So I I went off and I tried it as a startup. I've joined Builder.io, and Builder.io is a headless visual CMS Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Builder is trying to do is make sure that our websites, that our customers website are as fast as possible. And so Builder is investing heavily in open source projects to make web fast. And so for that, we have a couple of things. We have this thing called Quick, which is a front end framework specifically designed for a startup performance. And then we have this other thing called Party Town, which is designed for dealing with third party scripts.
4: We actually had Steve on the show. This is we are on our way to have like uh, what what can I call it it. It It a Builder I O series. Yeah, we did. We had Steve on on, where we had Steve talking about Builder itself. We have you to talk about Quick and then we'll have Adam to talk about party town in another episode so you know we're getting all the good stuff
1: yes for reference that was uh, episode 540 of javascript jabber from july we just want yep. the
3: web to be fast and win man that's 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 the goal
1: yeah,
0: yes. absolutely. I'm going to put a link in to the chat for the show notes. But yeah, it was fun kind of talking about it and and what goes into it. So yeah, but let's dive in and talk. I, I have a bunch of other questions that I want to ask, but I think we need to give people kind of a baseline of what we're talking about, and then
3: we can kind of move from there. Yeah, I think the best way to kind of get to 10,000 views is to kind of look at the history of how we got here. And and we got here, you know, first HTML became a thing, and so we had a whole bunch of server side rendered content using PHP or insert your favorite backend rendering technology you want. And then because it was server-side rendered, we had static output, right? And so we needed to make the static output somehow interactive. And so we had something like jQuery or Mootools or anything like that. And the, 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 that setup kind of worked. The problem was that you kind of had to write the thing twice. Once on a server using the server-end technologies, and then again on a client using JavaScript, and so over time, uh, frameworks such as Angular, uh, React, Vue, SDK, et cetera, took over. And the value for these frameworks is that they, uh, they, they have both the server side and the client side, right? So a single mental model on both ends. But they were mm-hmm. really designed as frameworks for SPAs or single page applications. And what that means is that really, uh, the way originally these frameworks were designed is, is for, for the app to start up in the client and basically everything happens in the client. But as we discovered, everything happening at the client meant that you would navigate to a page and you would see a blank page for a while before the the JavaScript kicks in, and that would be slow, especially on mobile devices or uh, slow devices, slow networks. And so, server side rendering became a thing, right? Like pre rendering the content became a thing, and and that improved the situation because you know now the user could see the content before they interact with it. But it kind of is a trickery, actually. Recently, I read a Twitter that somebody did it, a nice tweet that, you know, server-side rendering is kind of like you you come up to a site, you see a cake and you're like, oh, I'll have some of that cake. And then the computer says, that's actually just a picture, but I have all the ingredients. Let me bake you a cake if you just wait a little bit. Right. And so that's kind of what's happening right now. And it's
4: kind of slow on startup performance. And so quick. Yeah. No, cool. I I think it's a great explanation. You you mm-hmm. uh, delivered a lot of information in a really short period of time, like the, the history of the web, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, we actually had several episodes about this in the past. I I think that yeah, this this the introduction of server-side rendering or SSR as a means to address a performance problem which ended up creating another or a different performance problem like that the original yeah. <laughs> problem that right. was that you would wait a long time for the content to uh, to actually see anything But once you saw something, it was immediately interactive because Mm -hmm. the JavaScript rendered the UI on the client side. And the instant that the UI was rendered invisible, the JavaScript was there to handle all the interactivity for the stuff that it created. But but like you said, you had to wait for the empty HTML to arrive to make the request Mm -hmm. for the JavaScript, for the JavaScript to arrive quite a lot of JavaScript usually. Then for that JavaScript to be downloaded, parsed, compiled, actually make AJAX requests to get the relevant data. So you had to wait for that as well. And all, And then for the JavaScript to run and actually dynamically generate the HTML around it, and only then did you actually see something. And this was kind of viable on desktop devices, but like totally inappropriate for mobile devices, because for mobile devices with mobile connections and mobile processing speeds, especially of the lower end uh, angular uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> the lower-end Android device I was thinking As the lower end Android devices and the connections that you have in some in various countries around the world, it was it basically just generated the user experience, which was wholly unacceptable. And I remember at that time I was working at Wix and Wix originally, that's exactly how it worked, that everything was done client side and Like, like I said, it kind of worked fine where all the customers were in the US and most of the visitors were coming from desktop devices. But once the company kind of started reaching out global markets and once the company uh, and once like the majority of sessions became, you know, mobile device based sessions, it was just wholly inadequate. And then, like you said, we moved over to server side rendering where you run the same code, we used to call it isomorphic code, but I don't think I've heard the term in a long time now. You essentially run the exact same React code or view code or whatever on the server side. You generate the initial HTML, the initial view on the server side. You can even cache it, either on the server itself or in a CDN, deliver it really quickly. But like you said, what you get is the HTML without the JavaScript that creates the interactivity. So then you really quickly get something and the assumption is that by the time that the user figures out what they're saying and understands what they you know what they want to do, then hopefully by that point in time you would have already downloaded the the JavaScript, downloaded the data and wired everything up so that interactions could be handled. But it turned out that to way too often, this was not actually the case. And then, in effect, what you're getting is something that's potentially worse than slow. It's something that's broken. It's a UI that the visitor tries to click on or interact with, and literally nothing happens. So, and, and that's kind of like, from my perspective, the worst experience possible. And I, I want to
0: add, two things to that. One is that one of the solutions that people had to some of this was that you would make your website work without the JavaScript. But then you had to do all this extra work and think through all the scenarios that weren't natural to what you were doing. And the other issue was, was that occasionally you would run into stuff where isomorphic didn't actually mean isomorphic, where you would do something and for whatever reason, you'd do it on the server side rendering and it would do something different from what it would do on the client side. And so you'd get this weird limbo until everything kind of straightened itself out
3: yeah that's pretty much it, so that's the problem space, and this is the problem space that quick wants to address, right? Oh, good, because uh, I was about to quit, <laughs> yeah, so the problem space that is described here by Dan very well is is that the side startup performance is not very good and there's a lot of metrics that basically tie startup performance to your business performance. That basically says, Mm -hmm. you know, like, if if your website is slow, people leave, people don't buy, people don't put things in the shopping cart, you know, your, your revenue goes down. And Google's trying hard, and the, the Chrome team is trying hard to quantify this. If you go to one of those dev tools that Google has, they actually talk about like you know this company has seen increase this much if they improve the performance, so on and so forth, right? And so to kind of spur the industry, Google has created this thing called Page Speed Metrics. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind Page Speed Metrics is that like hey, let's start by measuring, right? Like things don't get better unless we measure things. And so Page Speed Metrics and Core Web Vitals are ways of measuring the performance that the, the, the users actually see. And then the idea is that, you know, use that information to kind of get, make the be- uh, web a better place. And so Google is saying that as leverage, they basically will use the performance information in, in their ranking, in the SEO rankings that hopefully motiv- uh, incentivizes people to, to kind of the companies to, to improve this.
4: Yeah, we, we had some episodes on this as well. So we actually even mm-hmm. had uh, Annie, Sully, Annie Sullivan, from who was the tech lead for this team at Google, who works on Vitals here on the show, explaining the history. And it was an excellent episode, and I highly recommend it. And we also had Martin Split talking exactly about how they use uh, this information as, as a ranking signal into into the Google search engine and and I agree that this was a prod or even a whip that the uh, Google kind of used to push the industry in the right direction but like you said I think the more important aspect even than the Google rank is the fact that it that performance has been shown to have a significant impact on engagement that if uh, like I said before, if somebody visits your site and then tries to click buttons on your site and your site just doesn 't respond to the clicks, that user will leave. They will not stay there, hoping that who knows maybe in four, five, six seconds, the site will fix itself. Uh, this is not how people behave. People expect especially in today's you know with with the immediacy of mobile devices, people expect uh, user interface. To respond very quickly and very instant, and almost essentially instantaneously to user interactions.
3: You know, people also use uh, speed as a proxy for quality. People will say like, "Oh, this this my website must be a really good website because it's really snappy, fast." Versus they like, you know, what I don't like this website. I don't necessarily might not be able to verbalize as to why they have the feeling of not liking, but like this is one of those things that humans do. They do this kind of substitution trick where like they need to decide whether they trust something or like something and they don't have sufficient data and so they'll substitute other information such as speed for it. I totally agree. Anyway, so so we kind of like described the problem space and, and I, I really want to point out here is that At the end of the day, the users win, right? Like this isn't Mm -hmm. like Google trying to trick somebody, whatever, like at the end of the day, like the aim is to make sure that we have fast websites because people enjoy using fast websites, right? So like this is a correct thing to do. It's the right thing to do uh, to figure this out. Now, the next problem, though, is that everybody agrees on this. Everybody wants to do this. Everybody understands that there is economical value in improving your website performance. But it turns out we don't know, actually know how to do this. Because if you look at top 50 e-commerce websites, vast majority, like, I don't know, like 90% or something like that, fail Google Web Vitals in terms of performance. And very few actually pass. Uh, first of all, nobody really passes. They're, most of them are in the red. Few of them are in the in the in the yellow, like Amazon and I think IKEA and I think Staples. Out of all all, all of them, actually have good scores, comparatively good. They're kind of in the yellow, uh, but I've never seen a real production website that actually has green scores on page speed in production. And yet there is so much incentive to get there, right? And so That seems like contradictory. I mean, basically you're saying, okay, we need to
1: go to these core web vitals, but all the top websites don't have good core web vitals. So
3: how do you, how do you yeah, uh, resolve I think, that? I think the problem is that the approach we have is not right. Like we're, we're solving the problem in a the, in the wrong way. Like, again, if you go back in time and how we got here, we recognized that we needed frameworks. And so we started working on frameworks and these frameworks were essentially lifted from what was available in desktop. And in desktop, you don't think about things like lazy loading your code or executing stuff or like, because the constraints are different. And so it's perfectly fine to execute the app from the very beginning. And so the, I think the problem is that the frameworks we have today aren't really thinking or not really, weren't really designed with these constraints in mind. And this is where Quick comes in. Like Quick is really rethinking the whole stack of how a website is built so that the end result is
4: what we call resumable. So, so before you, bef- I miss something before you go there I... AJ if I can interrupt you for one second just to put some data behind what Mishko just said I took a quick look at uh, the data that Google provides in their Crux report and website where you can actually look at the performance of various technologies like CMSs and also various frameworks and can you guys guess what is the ratio of React websites worldwide that have good Core web vitals like what percentage out of the of all react websites so, i want to clarify websites that are in production real websites, yes. not toy websites uh, yeah yeah right? exactly real websites like they collect this is google collecting data off of actual Chrome sessions. So whenever we actually had Rick Viscomi also on the show talking about that, Google actually instrumented their browser, Chrome browser, to collect performance data anonymously, of course, from every website that you visit, unless you explicitly like opt out. And they collect all this data into a database and they can actually slice and dice it based on technologies using a website, et cetera. So based on on the real data, from real live websites out there based on actual visitors b- visiting those websites, what percentage of, let's say, React and Vue websites, in your opinion, have good Core Web Vitals? Can anybody guess? Am I allowed to guess? Yes, you can get, you go for it. <laughs> I think it's pretty close to zero. Well, no, no, you're too harsh. <laughs> so
0: Yeah, way too harsh. There are at least six websites that use React. Yeah. I was well. going to give
4: it 1%. No, so so no, no. So the, the reality, no, no. You need to consider that a lot of websites out there are actually fairly lightweight and don't necessarily do that much. Yeah, so
3: this is what I meant by real
4: production e-commerce
3: websites. When you go real production e-commerce websites, I'm going to say it's pretty close to zero. When you go like toy websites or like blog posts, et cetera, the number goes
2: up. Yeah. So I so, was I don't think the number goes down. Have you have
4: you looked at people's React logs? <laughs> <laughs> I, by the way, in the case of in the case of React, I have to say and take a bit of credit, Wix is actually pulling React up because Wix websites are actually built using React on the inside, and Wix has invested a lot of effort into the infrastructure in order to provide good performance. So Wix websites actually have higher good core web vital ratios than React websites in general and are actually pulling React up. But the answer is that in the case of React, 30% of React websites have good core web vitals data. In other words, 70% do not, which is the vast majority. And in the case of Vue, Steve, by the way, it gets even worse. In the case of Vue, only 26% of Vue websites actually have good core vitals. So only about a quarter of you websites out there have good core vitals. So it's, it's quite obvious that the frameworks aren't doing anybody any favors, especially when you compare to the average across all websites, which is closer to 40%. So in fact, using a framework actually pretty much guarantees that you will have worse performance than not using a website. Maybe I'm giving you stuff for your talk. <laughs> <Misho>. <laughs> no, this is good stuff,
3: actually. I, I will probably use some of it in my talk. So, yeah. Th-
2: I wanted to back up for just a second. So you've been using the term quick and you may have explained it, but when I first heard it, I just assumed you were talking about quick as an HTTP 3. That sounds like that's not what you're talking about.
3: No, no, no. I'm talking about a new kind of framework for rendering your websites. framework that basically is designed around this idea of like, the first thing we want to aim at is make sure that the performance is absolute best we can get. And then everything else follows from that goal. And this is actually not... How the rest of the frameworks are are designed, you know many other frameworks are basically aren't really designed with like thinking about these problems from day one, and as a result they end up in in kind of accidentally end up in places uh which make you know performance kind of hard to achieve
0: I do want to point one thing out, you know, just to give them some credit. a lot of these frameworks do make web development quite a bit easier, right, or yes. they give you a lot of tools that let you build it, and so it's not like this. A uh, clear trade-off where it's like you must be an idiot if you're not doing this. It's, oh
3: no, this, the DX right? is amazing on these frameworks.
0: Right. So my point is, I guess mostly that we just need to be paying attention to what do you care about, what what matters in your circumstance here to make sure that you're you're getting out of your framework what you want.
3: Yeah. I actually want to take this a little more nuanced, which is that when I think a lot of times when when you have a slow performing website, people are quick to blame either the developer or the situation or something like that, right? And if that would be the case, then there should be websites out there that are good performance. There should be e-commerce websites that are good performance, right? Because it, mm-hmm. not all of us are equally bad. You know, some of us are a little better than others. The, but the point is that there are no good e-commerce websites. You know, even the ones like Amazon that clearly have the resources and money, et cetera, to spend on it, they only get kind of yellow score on, on the performance metrics. And so because nobody seems to be able to get this right, they, I think the fault does not lie with individuals as, as with uh, developers, but re- rather I think the fault is systemic in a, in a sense that it lies in our approach. I think the way we are approaching the problem is the problem right we need to like rethink the way the websites are built the way frameworks are built the way these solutions happen so that we can get good performance because doing it what we're doing today like we have plenty of empirical evidence that basically says we suck at this right like we just cannot get consistently get good performing website
4: that is in real production right so uh, so what is it that most existing or most almost all current frameworks are doing wrong that you think that Quick is doing right. How is Quick different? Well, you said that your initial intent was different and that was kind of mm-hmm. the catalyst or the driver for all your technical decisions. But at the end of the day, what, did, what does this translate to? Yeah. So that's an
3: excellent question. So existing frameworks, I, I, call, I uh, think they fall into this category that I call replayable. And what I mean by replayable is that they replay the application on the client in order to rebuild it, right? So so the server sends HTML over and we're pretty good at server-side rendering. We know how to make it fast. We know how to send HTML to the client and the clients are super fast at turning that HTML into pixels on a screen, right? So we know how to get the page to, to render quickly. The problem is that at this point, we don't know how to make the page interactive. Instead, what we do is we replay everything the server just did in order to rebuild the framework, rebuild the application so that we can make it interactive.
4: I think right. it's worthwhile to, to expand on this point a little bit because, it, it, you know, originally this problem did not kind of exist. You, you kind of alluded to that when you mentioned the old days when, when yeah. you had like PHP and jQuery because the, the jQuery did not need to, you know, jQuery could add interactivity and could do it fairly quickly. The, the, this problem did not exist. The, the problem exists because from the key difference is that in with modern frameworks, I think, and you tell me if you agree with this interpretation or not, the code, the JavaScript running on the client needs to assume total control over what happens with the application From that point going forward, because it's like you said, it's a single page application. So all interactions with the application after that initial display of the user interface needs to happen on the client side, which means that the JavaScript on the client side needs to have an applicative state that describes the entire user interface and any and also any state transition that might happen with it and that right. and that re- essentially requires recreating that application state that existed on the server side when that original HTML was created. And that's something that jQuery didn't even try to do. jQuery was just about, Yeah, we we have this button, you know, you click it, I'll, I'll handle it. But it didn't try to like go from there to the, you know, generate the next page on the client side you still did that round trip back to the server if if that's what you wanted to do and that right. is,
0: is that because of the shadow
4: dom and the way no, that it just changes or sh- something no 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 shadow dom okay. is totally different topic this has to do with the virtual dom i think that's the term you
3: the
0: virtual
4: for. dom that's yeah yeah, I
3: would yeah. even say it has to do with virtual DOM. I would do it more broadly, which is that application has really two states, right? One is the application state. And as a developer, this is kind of innate to you. Like you, you know what it is because you wor- you know, you use it, you move it around, you data bind to it. So you totally understand this concept of application state, right? This is the data that you're showing to the user in some form. But there's a second state that is not necessarily obvious, which is that it's the framework state. And frameworks really tried very hard to hide it from you, right? So you don't think about, like, what is framework doing underneath in order to render the page, right? But framework has state, too. Framework needs to understand, like, where are all the buttons? Where are all the mm-hmm. components? What are the relationships within components? If I click on this button, what function do I call? If this function gets executed and I modify this state, like, which component do I need to re-render, right? So there's a huge amount of state that the framework also has in addition to, Uh, what the application has. And people don't, don't normally think about that particular information as state, but it is state nevertheless. And so the problem is when the framework first wakes up, right? Like when jQuery wakes up, it's not a framework. And so it has no state. And so like it just does whatever you ask it to do. But when a framework wakes up, it's like, great. I have amnesia. I don't know anything. And I need to recover this state somehow. And the way the frameworks recover this state is they fully execute the application from the root of the component all the way through. And as the application is executing, the framework slowly build up information about the relationship between components, uh, where the listeners are, what should happen when you click on the listener, what is the state, you know, who, which other component is, has the state, and so on and so forth. And it's the rebuilding of this state, the rebuilding of the framework state that people don't usually think about that's actually causing all of these delay or this wake-up uh, startup delay,
4: basically. And this step is usually called either hydration or rehydration or stuff like that because right. you essentially had like the dried data, as it were, embedded in the HTML, maybe like Next.js does, where it sticks a big JSON in, in, in the mm-hmm. HTML, which describes the initial startup data but it's not state. But and that's the
3: application data. That's exactly. the application data, not the framework data.
4: Yes. And then the framework basically choose on that data and, and runs its, uh, everything that you need to do in order to recover its internal framework state from that initialization data, as it were. And that's, again, that's the hydration or rehydration or that's the usual term yeah. that I hear for.
3: And that's, that's really the problem, the root of the problem, right? Your application, when you navigate to a particular page, takes a long time to wake up, to become interactive, whatever you want to call it. Because in order for the framework to make it interactive, in order for the framework to be like, oh, there's a, but, there's a click listener at this location, the framework has to execute the application fully. But in order to execute the application fully, the framework has to download the application fully, right? And so it's this cascade of things like, at the end of the day, there's just a button that I have to click and I want to know the listener. But in order to get the button, I have to run the component. In order to run the component, I have to download the code. And, you know, it just cascades all the way down. And so even a simple website that's relatively static, just the the moment it has any sort of interactivity, forces you to re-execute the application fully. And this is where the slowdown comes from. And This is why the wake-up performance of these applications is low. And uh, this is basically the thing that we're trying to solve, right? And this is why we're talking about this idea of replayability because frameworks call it hydration or rehydration or whatever you want. What's actually happening in there is that the framework is replaying. It's redoing all the work the server just did so that it can recover the information that's missing.
0: Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topenddevs.com slash coaching.
4: I really like this explanation. I think that a lot of developers aren't really aware of, of this process. They just know that at startup time, if they've ever looked at the performance tab on, on, in the Chrome DevTools, they, they see that they have this like, lengthy execution time but, but right. they don't necessarily like know what that stuff is or where it comes from. So I, I think it's it's really important. And, and there are various attempts and various approaches in trying to either reduce this time or or at least mitigate its impact. like uh, yeah. react suspense to an or concurrent mode to an extent is an attempt, remix with their uh, approach of like falling back to the built-in uh, uh, HTML functionality and other approaches, the islands approach and, and so there are various other approaches, but I think yours is is kind of the most I would is the one that takes the problem the most head on is is what I would yes. say.
3: Yeah. So most approaches I would say fall into the category of like, we have to do this work and now we can just debate when the work gets done, right? And this is kind of what most existing approaches uh, fall into, and so the work can be uh, subdivided into smaller chunks. We can prioritize the order of things. We can delay order. We can subdivide it into islands. Uh, but at another day, the amount of work that exists is constant, and so we really are just bickering about like when the work happens and how much of the work happens eagerly and which one is later. So resumable systems are very different. They basically, as you say, take us head on. They basically say, actually, instead of wasting all this time trying to recreate this information that was lost on a server. We had the information at the server. Why can't we just have a framework that can serialize all this information in such a way that when you get to the client and the framework wakes up at the client, there is nothing to do because the framework state is serialized inside of it, right? And if you think about it, it's kind of what Next.js is doing with the next data attribute that they put inside of the the script tag inside of your page, right? But it's doing it for the application, right? When the application wakes up, the application also says, I need to get data. And so the application will start making XHR requests or something like that. And so next Next.js is basically saying, wait, no need to do the, the XHR. I'm just going to include the data for you. So when you wake up, you have the data ready and you can save yourself a whole bunch of round trips, right? So it's the same exact idea. We're just taking it all the way through and saying, yes, but let's do it for the framework as well. So when the framework works up, it doesn't have to be like, where are the component boundaries? Where are my listeners? You know, if I change this data, where's the subscription for it? None of this information needs to be recovered because it's just serialized inside of the HTML. Okay, so my
0: question then is, I mean, you know, you spent how many years working on Angular? Why couldn't you just make Angular do this?
3: So, you know, it's, it's kind of funny that I'm in Utah right now at Angular conference. Right. Because in 2019, I was on a stage of of NGConf, and I gave a talk about replayable versus resumable applications. Uh, I'll have a link for you so that you can share mm-hmm. it with your. Right. With, it's on YouTube, and I basically laid all this thing out uh, for it. Um, turns out, re- doing resumable systems is hard. Hard in the sense that there are very subtle design decisions that you have to make in order to make things resumable, and these design decisions, unless they're kind of baked in from the very beginning are really hard to bring back after the fact, right? Because mm-hmm. these design decisions turned out to be breaking changes for the existing ecosystem. Okay. Right? And so, can, is it possible for existing frameworks to become reasonable? Absolutely. But it's hard because doing so will introduce breaking changes into the system. And these breaking changes are not subtle. They're pretty big. And these breaking changes basically means that the, the framework has to say to the community, you know what? We're making such a big breaking change that all of your existing third-party software essentially won't work.
0: I think yeah, everybody great. loved that when Angular went from one to two.
4: Yes. yeah,
3: And, um, and I don't think anybody's willing to do that.
4: And, and look at how long it's taking for React to come up with, with, for the React team to come up with React 18, where they're arguably making a much smaller change about just being able to break up uh, the the hydration process into sub-steps that can be like paused and resumed. So, yes. and, I, and I really don't think that people understand this potential scope of the challenge because, no. because yes. it, just think about it this way. You, you have a JavaScript application, forget about browser and server. Let's say I have a JavaScript-based application or maybe not even JavaScript, any type of application running on one computer And I want to somehow transfer the entire state of dynamic state of that application off to another computer so that it can keep running immediately from wherever it was. You know, all the closures, the objects in memory, like height, like, serializing all this stuff is is really complicated and potentially also really heavy one of the examples that i that i i like to give that is kind of similar to that is that you know in javascript in, in the browser for a long time we've had uh, web workers as a way to kind of offload uh, work off of the main thread into like sub threads or and mm-hmm. and unfortunately it it hasn't caught on to the extent that we would have hoped and one of the big reasons is that serializing data and sending it from the one, thre- one worker to another and then serializing the data back is often so complicated and so heavy that it's, then it's, that it's, it takes more time than actually doing whatever computation that you wanted to do. So, so it's really challenging to do this thing effectively. So I'm really curious about well, how you did it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> First of all, a little plug for Party Town, right? Party Town is the thing that allows you to run your stuff in Web Workers. So people should check it out. But yeah, how exactly do you do that? So the whole problem, as you pointed out, really comes down to serialization, right? You need to be able to serialize the state of the system. And what's what's kind of hard about it is that a lot of times the state of the system lives in like, Weird places you don't think about, like closures, right? When you have a listener, for example, when I have a uh, counter and the counter has a button and the button has a listener and you click on that listener, uh, you know, the, the counter, the, the handling function for that counter is pretty simple, right? It just increments some number, right? The hard part is, well, what is the number you want to increment, right? If you just lazy load that function, it has amnesia. It has no idea what the current state is. And so, yeah, the code is easy you know, sure, increment the number, that's easy. But what number is it currently at? And that's the hard part. And the hard part is that usually these functions close over other variables, right? So if you look at a React function, if you, let's say the React component can count, it will have things like state equals use state, right? And then the, the, the click listener closes over the use state. And so if you try to lazy load a listener, now the problem is, yeah, but I need to pass it the use state function the setter function, right? Like, how exactly do you do that? And so, the whole thing really comes down to this, to this, this problem of serialization. But there's a second problem as well, and that is, not only do you need to serialize everything, you also need to be able to break up the system so that you have multiple entry points into your application. If you think about an existing app, like, again, let's do a very simple counter example. In the case of a counter, the only thing that you really have to export is some kind of a main method, right? Like an entrance to the system and everything else can be in a single bundle with no other exports, right? But if you want to be resumable and you now click on the plus one button, you don't want to enter the system by the main method, right? By re-entering and re-rendering the whole thing. You want to just enter it by going directly to the listener. And that listener is a closure that's not importable. It's not a thing that I can lazy load. And so the problem comes down to serialization. And two, how do you rearrange the source code in such a way so that you can enter the system in places other than the main method? Basically, every single listener is a potential... Place of entry.
4: And I also assume that you want to slice and dice the code ideally in such a way that code that, so for example, if I have two buttons on the page, maybe uh, I, if when you want, need the code to handle but one button, you don't necessarily want the code to handle the other button, especially, mm-hmm. you know, if it's really complicated code that does a whole lot, bunch of computations it, and, and requires a lot of of stuff that's associated state that's associated with it i don't necessarily want to download that state if i don't if i don't need it yet that's right
3: so if you look at a typical e-commerce website right you might have a button for add to the shopping cart and you people will probably click on that and you also might have a button for like logout or something like that, which like, how many of us actually ever click on the logout button? Like almost never, right? So it's it's unfair to basically treat the two callbacks as of equal importance in terms of loading, right? You want to be able to say like, well, this button is more important, so I want its code to be loaded first, and this button over here is kind of less important, and so it's not as, uh, you know, you can load it later or basically even skip loading it. So one of the things we kind of talk about with Quick is that it has two important properties that other frameworks don't have. One is Is this idea of resumability, right? Where you just continue where the server left off. And the other idea is partiality, which is that you partially execute stuff only as needed, right? The, The idea of partial is that you only download and execute code that is actually needed. And so when you combine these two properties together, you end up in a world where, no matter the complexity of the application, doesn't matter how complicated the, the website is, you essentially start with zero JavaScript. And you don't have to recover any state because you're resumable, so you skip that part. And then the partiality allows you to basically download the code as the user interacts with the page.
4: But that brings up an interesting point from my perspective, because if what, what you're saying that the code that handles the button click only actually gets downloaded potentially and initialized or or resumed rather than initialized on the client after the person clicks the button. So where does the event go? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, so you have
3: to have a framework that is asynchronous in the sense that it has to... Um, the way normal frameworks work is that if you want to set up a click listener, you have to have a closure for the listener ready ahead of time. Whereas... In the resumable world, it's kind of the other way around. Like You know there is a listener, but you don't know what's handling the listener until the listener actually gets triggered. And so the there is some lazy loading that's involved. And of course, there is uh, you need to be able to handle these events in an asynchronous manner. And oh, by the way, most existing frameworks cannot handle uh, things asynchronously. Most existing frameworks really want everything to be fully synchronous.
2: Yeah, that's something that's been really frustrating looking at the front-end landscape is that the you'd think that because it's JavaScript, I, I guess I guess because promises have only been around for what five years in the language yeah. itself. But yeah, every, everything the, the error handling is terrible, the routing is terrible. It's really really difficult to design well on the front end with the existing frameworks due to that lack of. I mean that's 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 a primitive of JavaScript is is its async nature.
3: Yeah, you know it's funny because like I I used to talk about how Quick is also asynchronous, but it didn't really resonate with people, so I kind of stopped mentioning it. But yes, one of the key property of Quick is that it is fully asynchronous, so that you can stop, uh, you can pause rendering at any point with a promise, and we actually take advantage of that with streaming. And you can also, uh, of course, uh, your, your click handlers are also fully asynchronous. And so you don't need to necessarily process the event immediately. Uh, and, but all of that kind of has to be built into the framework. And the framework has to be happy with the fact that when a parent component wants to go and instantiate a child component, it might not exist. The child component might have to be fetched from somewhere in order to do the instantiation, right? And
4: most frameworks are not very good at dealing with that. So all events and all communication between components, or let's call it all communication between the various subsystems, let's say, in, in Quick are essentially asynchronous based on what you're saying. That yes, it has to be. Cool. Otherwise you can't insert lazy loading everywhere, right?
3: Cool, interesting. Because lazy loading is asynchronous, right? If you do a dynamic import, it's a promise. And therefore you can call a synchronous function from an async function. But the other
4: way around, it doesn't really work. You can't call a asynchronous function from a synchronous function. But I can see it still causing potential issues. Like, for example, if I want to cancel the default browser processing of an event, I have to do that synchronously. I can't do that as asynchronously because by that point in time, the built-in uh, functionality would have executed.
3: Yeah, so there are ways uh, we have for kind of doing this. So certain things, you're right, are, have to be done fully synchronously. Uh, there's no choice. It's just the way the browser API is. But actually, it's pretty rare. It's not as common as you think. And usually just telling the framework that like, oh, by the way, I need to cancel the default. Like it gets complicated when you conditionally want to cancel the default. But as long as it's
4: like something you know ahead of time and
3: be like, oh yeah, all these defaults, I want to cancel for this event. Uh, that's
4: easy to do. You know what you remind me? I once told uh, Brendan Eich that maybe he should have created JavaScript so all that all functions would have been asynchronous by default. And you know what he said in response? What? One word <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway. So
2: it, it's somebody asked me, well, a couple of times people have asked me on the live streams what if there was a language where the, the default behavior was a wait? It's a kind of similar question. And that is essentially what Go is. And I think that that's kind of the way that Mm -hmm. Kotlin is as well, right? So when everything is await by default, everything's in the event loop, but everything's essentially await by default. It's a little bit more subtle than that because it's actually just using an event loop to do multiple synchronous things. But still, and if you want something to be quote unquote async, then you, you type, go and then the function name and then that runs in the background and there's a channel it's called channels is the mechanism for being able to essentially get the the callback for it but it's uh it's more of a job queue type pattern than a tofty bofty every every function goes everywhere kind of pattern but i i think that that i think it could have worked if if it took the kind of goish slash kotlin approach mm-hmm. yeah i totally agree with that but i mean javascript is what it is right like this
3: is what we have, so let's make it work with what we have.
2: You know, that's a really cute mentality. It's too bad no one in the JavaScript community believes that. <laughs> um,
3: you know, I went through the phase of where, like, I wanted to replace JavaScript with other things, and if you look at the history of it, it all failed, right? Like, TypeScript being exceptional. Oh, oh
2: no, it's, it's been exceptionally successful. We, we now have half of TypeScript as the language, and so yeah, on but, and so forth, et cetera. Et
3: but TypeScript cetera. is not really... A, is not trying to replace JavaScript. Right? Oh. TypeScript basically is a design time only. I disappear at runtime. Think. Right, and this is well, why TypeScript is successful.
2: No, because it's gotten into the standard. So, for example, a lot of the TypeScript stuff, the classes, and you know, yada yada. A lot of that C Sharpy type stuff has gotten into the language. Yeah, and a lot of the Ruby type stuff got into the language.
3: Uh, sure, so but so it's, like it's not changing the semantics yeah. of the language. Yeah, but
4: I'm, go- right? I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm going to pull us out of that rabbit hole because <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. I, I, really, I really want to talk more about Quick. Right, right. So what? Right, I, I'm, I'm, rabbit hole you. or tailspin? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, let's talk, let's, let's talk about Quick. So talking about the this slicing and dicing of, of the code that you write, how does that happen? Uh, like, how do you chop this? Uh, like, you know, I I, I assume I write, it, you know, we didn't even get to the point of how I start a Quick project and whatnot and what's involved in setting that up. Yeah. And maybe we should discuss this as well. But I assume you have a code base that's kind of similar in a lot of ways to a React application or a Vue application or whatever, yeah. and it needs to somehow get sliced and diced to be to uh, to support this smart delivery that you were describing. So you know, so you know what? Let, let's backtrack. How do I? If let's say so far I'm really interested in what I'm hearing so far. I want to give Quick a try. I'm familiar with React, maybe I'm familiar with Vue, maybe you know. How how do I go about getting quick on my system, and how similar or strange is it going to be for me as uh, uh, compared to the framework that I'm familiar with? Yeah. Right. So
0: yeah,
4: I, I really want to talk about the slicing and dicing
0: a little bit here too, because I'm imagining right that I click something and the system goes, "Hold on, I got to figure out what to do." right and so yeah so i mean some of it's going to look i'm assuming pretty similar to something i'm familiar with but under the table
3: it's doing some other work and yeah so so yeah kind of both right answer all these questions let me try to answer all those questions first of all quick dx wise or syntactically wise if you look at it and you don't even have to squint very hard it's going to look just like react and this is not a coincidence this is kind of intentional this was our what we are going for. So if you know React, you should have an extremely easy time with uh, Quick. But you're the Angular so guy. When,
2: say... when when you say it looks like React, yes. you mean that there's no distinction between HTML and JavaScript and CSS? It's all just
3: one? Yeah, it's JSX. And, oh. you know, components <laughs> are
2: functions.
3: Hey, and... don't, don't get too too <laughs> depressed. <laughs> <laughs>
2: what happened to web components?
4: Oh, don't get me started on that. Yeah,
2: let's break um... Alex
4: Russell on the show to argue about it again. <laughs>
2: No, we're talking about
4: quick. Uh, We we can have the not
3: reasonable. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, fair. Go. Yes. Okay. So, so Vx wise, you're going to find something that's very React like. But this is where the similarities kind of end. Like your mental model and the way you build applications is going to kind of be the same. But when I say about squinting, what I mean is you're going to see a whole bunch of dollar signs at the end of functions. Like you don't like in React, you just say component. You know, function foo, and now foo is a component. And so in Quick, it's the same thing, except you have to wrap the function in an additional function called, called component dollar sign. And the reason for that is because the dollar sign has a special meaning to our optimizer, the piece of code that goes and then moves things around, right? The optimizer is the thing that breaks up our code base into tiny, tiny pieces. And the nice thing about the way it is designed is that the optimizer is completely clueless about Quick. And this is actually a good thing. And so, optimizer has extremely simple rules that it follows, and basically says, "Oh, whenever you see a dollar sign at the end of a function, then take the first argument and make it uh, pull it out into a top-level importable thing that is that has an export, and uh, you know leave behind kind of a reference as to how to how the framework needs to get a hold of this thing." And so, the optimizer goes through and basically breaks up your app into teeny tiny pieces. The more, the better, because so, you know we can talk about prefetching so and preloading just, later. Just to...
4: yeah. Just to verify that I understand, so essentially the what you call the optimizer is essentially a form of transpilation, that you're taking what happens to be JavaScript code written in a certain way, and you're transpiling it into JavaScript code that's written in a somewhat different way.
3: I think the word, yes, but I think the word transpilation is a strong word because transpiler implies that you're modifying the the kind of the structure of the functions or the content, like transpiler from Java to, from Dart to Java, that's a transpiler, right? Because the two languages are completely different. But in our case, it's more like a refactoring. Like we go through and we refactor the code by hoisting different functions into top level importable things, right? So we find a closure such as a click listener and we hoist it into a top level
4: export component foo underscore click equals blah, blah, blah. So, effect- real quick, so, so effectively every component. It becomes its own module, as it were. Sure, but it's even more than that, right? It's a component becomes
3: its own module. Every uh, use client effect becomes its module. Every click listener becomes its module, right? It really gets decomposed into almost like every single function is a separate thing that you can download. Interesting. So that's the hard part. The hard part is breaking the code base into pieces. Once you have too many pieces, then you have to have a, you have a problem of like prefetching and making sure that things come together. You know, like you don't want to download thousand things, right? You want to download fewer things, and so now the problem of bundling comes in, which is like putting things that are related together but it turns out the bundling problem is relatively easy because that's just essentially you know fancy concatenation of strings the hard part is breaking all this stuff down what do you mean by breaking all this stuff down basically creating in creating entry points right creating things that I can dynamically import that the framework can dynamically import in other words um, quick is in the business of creating uh, dynamic modules uh, without the developer having to do anything right? Today, if you want to lazy load something, as a developer, you have to do stuff. You have to put things in a separate file. You have to leave behind a dynamic import. You have to execute some code and so on and so forth, right? Quick wants to be kind of do all of that for you without you having to think about it. And it should just naturally, as you write your application, Quick does all the breaking up for you. By the way, what do you use for the bundling? I think we use Rollup right now, but like, it's independent. I mean, you could use something else. I think Rollup and Vite is what's being used, but that in itself is not a hard requirement.
2: A question on that: What do you do? You happen to know if you want some code that has, a, say, a slightly different branch between Node and browser? So, in Node, it's going to use the crypto module, and browser is going to use Web Crypto. And you need to specify which file. Is there, is there a standard for that that is common? Because what I'm used to is package.json.browser. And I think that web, Webpack predominantly used that. I thought a few of the other ones used it. Do you know anything about that?
3: I do not. But we. Okay. this is a general problem that like you want to run different code on a server than on a client. One of the interesting bits about Quick is that if you look at a lifecycle of a component, the component is instantiated on a server. And then like continues running on the client and maybe gets destroyed on the client, right? It, the lifecycle kind of spans different VMs. And and at, when it gets instantiated on a server, the component can for example, talk directly to the database. So there are trickeries inside of Quick that allow us to do these kinds of things where a component, when it's on a server, can have access to other kinds of code, that clearly cannot move to the client, right? Like so I a talking to a MongoDB is only a thing on a, on a server. It is not a thing when you're inside of the browser. On the browser, you have to talk through some kind of a REST API that internally then
4: eventually talks to the MongoDB. And are source maps good enough to handle all the slicing and dicing that goes about? Because you really seem to be moving code around.
3: Yes, they are because and again i'm going to come down to people are afraid of source map because you have a transpiler, and a transpiler not only moves the code around but also rearranges your variable names and order of things and does all and inserts all kinds of other stuff right, and so your code. It, when you after you're done with the transpiler is kind of unrecognizable whereas if you look at quick you are just doing a refactoring we're literally just moving a closure from this location to this other location and because of that source maps work wonderfully because you're not creating extra things there are no extra variables that you didn't see before there are no names you know the, within the function the code doesn't get modified it just gets moved somewhere else
4: so you said that the framework is kind of similar to react in that you use components and that the com- output of the components is described as JSX, so I assume it's kind of like the similar model that if I ignore the fact that it's wrapped inside component dollar, it's effectively a function that takes parameters, like you said, that and and then returns uh, like uh, JSX that you use to actually update the user interface. Mm-hmm. What kind of approach do you take with that? Is that kind of like a VDOM approach similar to what React does or maybe a, re- a reactive approach similar to what Solid does? So how does the JSX become actual DOM manipulations? Yeah, it's it's
3: somewhere in between. It's the, the quick has to be reactive because otherwise you'd be forced to wake up all the components and then you would be forced to download all the components and and so on and so forth. So quick is reactive, unlike react. But it's not as fine-grained
4: reactive as solid. So the answer is somewhere in between. It, it's funny when you're saying like, it's reactive, unlike react.
3: <laughs> yeah, react is not reactive. Shots right? fired. Right. <laughs> but I don't think that's that's the thing that, it's not, I'm not shouting, uh, shooting for, uh, shots here. I'm just saying like, it, the, you know, reactivity is not part of react,
4: even though it's in the, kind yeah. of in the name and how do you handle the applicative state like do you have neither is angular Angular is not reactive either right <laughs> well yeah. it depends you know at the company where i worked at next some of our applications are actually written using react and we using uh, nxjs so
3: uh, yeah but it's not part of the framework, yeah that's right? true it's a library you add after yeah
4: like kind of like, like more you can make react yeah. kind of reactive through mobx yeah exactly right? so so what do you do so Talking about that.
0: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop us real quick and let Steve do his picks so he ah, can take off. True. And then we'll let AJ do his picks. I have a hard stop at noon. so I could go on forever. Nighttime.
4: I'm having a time. Of oh, time. I know. We know. That, that, well,
0: and, and there's so much good stuff here. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash
1: premium. Anyway, go ahead, Steve. Oh, okay. So let's see. Pick dad jokes of the week. Got to go back in through my daily archive here. So, you know, we've heard this people say this when they get older. Say, when I was young, I was poor, and, and I struggled. And after years of struggle, I can say, I'm no longer young.
3: Right. You know, when is a dad joke? When is a, When is a joke a dad joke?
1: Uh, I know this, and I can't remember the answer. When the punchline is apparent. Yes, there we go. Thank you, thank you. So, Dan, you've mentioned a few times that you're uh, you're going to Australia soon for a conference.
4: Uh, not so, so soon, but,
1: but yeah. In a few months, sometime. Anyway, so do you know why Australians laugh at flightless birds? I have no idea. They find them amusing.
4: <laughs> okay. <sighs>
1: And then finally, did you hear about the family that died of random head injuries? I grew up just a stone's throw away from them where they lived. Crazy. That was a bit dark. That that
4: was a bit dark. That's all I have to say.
1: Yes. Yes. That was
4: rather dark. But
1: yes, usually the guests are the panelists just like, okay, here we go again. So (laughs) anyway, I need to get uh, some sound effects that are, oh, oh, I know. Well, see, there's the nice thing about Riverside is you can upload custom sound effects. You just need to find them. So, yeah, there's a few that I want to upload. That would be fun for sure. I have a question. Send them to Michaela. She'll get them uploaded. Anyway.
3: Uh, How do you measure functions? Heard it. By parameters. Very good. I just. That's
1: that's true. I got to tell you. Don't encourage them. Just go. Don't. (laughs) I love it when the guests bring the dad jokes. It, It happens more and more. It's. So fun. So thank you, Mishko, for that. Anytime.
0: All right. Any other picks or should we throw it to AJ? I am done. Okay. AJ.
2: All right. I got a a short list today. So first I'm going to pick an oldie but a goodie, Julian Smith's Malk. It's a little comedy skit. Feels almost like a throwback to E-Bomb's world. But the, the point of it is that they can't figure out how to pronounce milk correctly and secretly or not so secretly. I've been teaching my children that milk is called moke, and so I ask them if they want moke. And whenever they say milk, I correct them and tell them that it's moke. But we still do milkshake as is milkshake.
4: Isn't that? Isn't it so great being a parent that you can create all sorts of uh, funny hang-ups with your kids? Like you know, you're scarring them for life, but it's so funny. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm just I'm really hoping this becomes a conversation
2: at someone's house that's around my age and they get the joke and, and I really think I'm a clever dad. But also along those lines, I have a bottle of maple syrup that's in a glass jar and we just refill it, but it's dad's special maple syrup and no one's allowed to have any only dad. <laughs> but it's just the regular maple syrup that everybody yeah. has. And then uh, also I'm picking webinstall.dev again. I mean, I should pick that every week. But yes, I we have updated it so that now there is webby.sh and webby.ms. And the neat thing about that is that now, with with the introduction of those, we've paved a way for non dynamic script distribution. So, one your your URL is a little bit shorter when you do curl https colon slash slash webby.sh slash node pipe sh. Oh, that's the other thing is that it's now POSIX compliant shells. So it should work in all of the Docker environments. And we should soon have BSD support. But the so so now it's not dynamic anymore. So webby.sh will always give you the POSIX script. And webby.ms will always give you the PowerShell script. So you've got a, a little bit less to type. Uh, the the microsoft version no longer needs uh, a a little bit of extra flag for the microsoft user agent string and i just think that this is a, a pretty awesome update and a shout out to um, my co-author on this, Ryan Burnett, for having, he kept on pressing me. We need to get Web ESH. We need to get Web ESH. And, and we did. So now we've got it and it's, it's up and running. And for those that don't know, it, webinstall.dev is basically the quickest, fastest, most secure way to install your developer tools that's guaranteed to work every time in your face. The end.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to derail us back onto the episode and we'll have the editor just move things around. I think we really only have time for one more thing. And I'd like to kind of dive into this. And then if we do have time, we can go back to what we were talking about before. But how, how do people get started with Quick?
3: It's oh, uh, very easy. We have a command line tool. So it's npm create quick at latest. Just follow the prompts. It will set up a nice Quick City application. Quick City is our meta framework. So you can have... Um, routing and uh, fetching data and all the other stuff that comes with it. And I think the, the kind of a big difference, you know, I was, I was talking to people and, and I'm trying to explain like how Quick is different. And I think it's kind of like the difference between normal companies and then highly vertically integrated companies like uh, SpaceX, Apple, and so on, and uh, and Tesla, right? And because these highly integrated companies, they can make sure that all the pieces work together seamlessly. And so Quick is the same kind of a thing, right? Quick's job is to worry everything from, server side rendering bundling optimization prefetching styling, and you know of course rendering on the client and because we kind of own the whole thing end to end, we can basically do a better job than like if you try to glue a bunch of independent tools together because there's always something somewhere that is just doing things just slightly off that's preventing you from.
4: Getting mm-hmm. adjusted. So, a question about that: You mentioned routing. I should have asked before. Is Quick and uh, effectively an SPA, an MPA, both? Is it a developer choice? Is it your choice? Like, how does it work?
3: <laughs> yeah. So it's funny because once you become resumable, this whole MPA SPA difference kind of sort of disappears. So we have examples, like, for example, if you don't have JavaScript running, then obviously it's just like MPA, you know, you're navigating between static pages. But if you have JavaScript running, we have a link component that we can intercept all the reps and automatically turn them into client-side routing, essentially. So you become an SPA in that particular case. So you can have a both, best of both worlds. And so it's even hard to kind of even discuss, like, is it an MPA or is it an SPA? Because the MPA-SPA distinction in a lot of ways, is because of how we got here. And once you have, you know, server-side, uh, once you have reasonable mobility, it's even hard to even talk about, like, well, is it? Which one is it?
4: Well, there were motivations mm-hmm. for SPAs, in a sense, you know, putting aside, the, the like, the technological or DX motivations. There were UX motivations around things like, doing some sophisticated transitions when moving between pages or retaining yeah. parts of the UI, what Remix, I think, called, they have a term for that, like uh, uh, inner, inner, like par- partial, uh, I forget the term they use, that they, when you're when you're moving between uh, pages, you don't need to replace the entire page. You can just replace portions of the page. Mm-hmm. But so what if you could make the
3: decision on per link? What if you could say, like, this link should be an MPA and this one should be an SPA? Like, that would open up a whole new set of worlds, right? Right now, when you have an MPA app, you can't have an SPA app on vice versa, mm-hmm. right? But if you do it kind of on per link or maybe even on, on like, oh, well, initial navigation is going to be NPA here, but then later on it becomes like, like all of these things become a developer's choice depending on what you need best in this particular situation rather than an architectural decision that you have to
4: do at the very, very beginning. Just uh, remember the term I think that they use is nested routes or something like that. But basically what you're saying is that, well, you know, in many cases, it actually does make sense to do much of the navigation service side because you get the benefit of delivering Pre-created static HTML, really, which can be done really quickly these days, thanks to content delivery networks. Uh, so, so yeah. If, and and then again, you're you're avoiding replacing the built-in browser router, which is you know kind of the best router out there if, if it if you can use it. Yeah, interesting. I need to think about that. Uh, and and another thing, how I actually kind of know the answer to that, but I'll ask it to, of you nonetheless how do you ensure that the needed javascript is delivered quickly i mean if if i if whenever i click a button i need to do a round trip to the server then that potentially introduces like uh 300 millisecond delay just just to fetch the data even if the data is really small just because of the round trip how do you work around that? Yeah, the answer is prefetching, and mm-hmm.
3: um, it's a topic we could go into. It's a pretty deep topic, but the short yeah. answer is the short, short of it is that. Quick can downloads the code that it might need, but it's very good at saying like, yeah, but I don't need like all the static components, et cetera. So in the worst, worst situation, the Quick will prefetch all the same application code as a normal framework. But that was situation essentially almost non-existent in real life. So in real life, the Quick will prefetch tiny fraction of the overall app. And then the second advantage is that even if the code is prefetched, it's not actually executed, Right. So the the existing frameworks need to fetch the code and execute it in order to recover the state. Quick doesn't have to do the execution bit until you actually interact with it. And so there's a huge
4: savings, even though, if you're... If you I, I did your ask it as kind of a... Right, lead, I, I, uh, one thing, Chuck, I promise, really short, just to mention <laughs> that I actually asked that as kind of a leading question because not in the context of this episode as we've likely run out of time, but one day, maybe some other context, I need to have this argument with you. It should be preloaded Rather than prefetch. You should be using preload rather than prefetch. And you're probably right because prefetch is broken in the
3: browsers, but that's a separate discussion.
0: <laughs> All right. I've got to push us to picks because I, I have a hard stop in five minutes. Dan, do you want to start us with picks?
4: Sure. Why not? Okay. So uh, my first pick is I just finished watching uh, The Sandman on Netflix. And unlike many others, I've never read the comics. I'm not a big comics person. I never got why. I never understood why all the supposed nerds and geeks on on the Big The uh, Big Bang Theory. Uh, TV show always went to the comic book store. I That never really turned me on. But be that as it may, I watched it uh, on Netflix. And on the one hand, uh, I liked it. Uh, it was enjoyable. But on the other hand, there was a problem for, for me with it is that I didn't really identify with any of the characters there. And that kind of, it's a problem, you know, a series doesn't really suck you in if you don't kind of identify at least with some of the characters on the show. Uh, so it was fun, but not really beyond that at least for me, but be that as it may. watched it all the way through, and uh, it was a nice distraction nonetheless. So that would be my my first pick. My second pick is uh, you know we were picking so like i said i 'm not so big on comics, but I do like uh, fantasy and science fiction books and novels, uh, and we were do and we were picking some of those in recent episodes. And I don't think this one was actually ever mentioned. So I would like to give a big shout out to the Gentleman Bastard series uh, by Scott Lynch. It's an uh, an excellent series for people who are into these types of stories of books. They are often considered some of the best fantasy books ever written. They're really different in that their setting is kind of different from what you usually find in, in most fantasy books. They're more like oriented towards, uh, you know, like uh, what happens in cities and, and uh, the, the heroes of the books are actually kind of thieves. So, so it's, it's, it's really interesting and I highly recommend it. So that would be my second pick. And my third and final pick is that same pick I pick each and every time. You've probably gotten used to it, but I I refuse to stop. And that's the ongoing war in Ukraine, which really uh, is so depressing and never ending. And you know it doesn't seem like it's getting better. It's only, it only seems to be getting worse. And uh, I, we just need to to have it uh, you know uh, at at the forefront of our thoughts. And anything that anybody can do to help, well, they should. And those would be my my picks for today.
0: Awesome. I'm going to go rather quickly. Uh, First of all, we are doing a JS Remote Conf in October. So if you're looking for a conference that you can attend remotely, we are trying to bring in some of the hallway track and things like that. So we'll have tables that you can kind of log on to and do a video chat and what have you. And we're going to try and have our speakers around some of the time so you can chat with them. There's also a networking session every day and the last day is going to have workshops. So go check it out at jsremoteconf.com. And then I'm going to do some shout outs about some other stuff. So one of the things that I look at our for tools for things that I need is AppSumo. And so in the past, I've used an app called uh, Bonjoro to kind of send video messages to people. And they had a lifetime subscription to a service called Vumu That's Vumu.io, which does basically the same thing. And it was like 60 bucks. And so, you know, instead of paying the monthly fee, which was, I think, around 60 bucks, um, I paid once and now I get to use it as much as I need to. So I'm really digging that. And then, yeah, I think that's kind of it. I'm going to skip the board game pick this week just because I didn't prepare and I need to get us off the call. So yeah, Mishko, what are your picks?
3: You know, um, we were talking about uh, how people behave, et cetera. And so I kind of like human psychology and David, Kahneman, I believe the, the guy's name is. He's Israeli. Uh, he got a Nobel Prize, actually, for his work. He did some amazing work, especially the book Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like I consider it the uh, your your user's manual to your own brain. And a lot of fascinating stuff is in that book. So if you ever have a chance to read it, it's a very thick book, very big book but some amazing stuff is in there. Uh, you should definitely, everybody should read it.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that one's been on my list for a while. I just haven't quite gotten around to it. Mishko, if people want to check you out or check out Quick, learn a little bit more about what we've talked about today, where do they find all that stuff?
3: So to check out Quick, just go to quick.builder.io. From there, you can find links to our community where you can uh, join our Discord and so on. And of course, I'm on Twitter as M MHevery. And yeah, reach out and I would love to talk to you about it. Awesome.
0: Well, thanks for coming. This was awesome. Sorry to make Thanks you do it from the you. hotel, but that yeah. Fine. All right. Well, I'll probably uh, send you an email, see if we can get together while you're in town. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bye. See you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.